Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Welcome to Friday and welcome to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis. Just before the show, Week in Review producer Kevin Kniestat said, this is going to be a fun show because, and I quote, We've got talkers. And then he stared at me directly to say, so let them talk, pal. Message received, Kevin. Joining us today, our Seattle Times editorial writer and columnist, Claudia Rowe. Claudia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Insider investigations correspondent, Catherine Long, who I seem to be on the show regularly with. Hey, Mike, how's it going? And a political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balter. Joni, We've been like one degree of separation our entire careers here in Seattle, and now we're finally Let, in the same let's room. Let's stop that right here. <laughs> Lovely to join you t- today. We're, we are uh, uh, streaming live on Facebook and YouTube if you want to catch us there. Uh, so today we've got foster care, the PCC closing in downtown, restrictions on police lying. But first, let's talk Amazon. Amazon, that scrappy online startup you might have heard of has been accused by the Federal Trade Commission of destroying two years of communication requested by the government regulator, which had asked for that information as part of an antitrust lawsuit against the online retailing giant, which was filed in federal court uh, locally uh, in September. Specifically, the federal government alleges that the company destroyed information linked to what the government said were illegal, uncompetitive practices such as gaming customer search results and retaliating against its own third-party sellers by taking away the online, quote, buy box when the company was displeased with those sellers, among other practices. So we do have an Amazon expert here, Catherine. Catherine, what did we learn from the most recent unredacted court filings? These filings were so exciting for people who have been watching Amazon for a long time. They shed a ton of light on the inner workings of this company. Uh, One of the most interesting things for me uh, to learn in these filings is uh, that Amazon had for years a secret pricing algorithm called Project Nessie that it would use to raise prices on products and see if competitors would follow their lead. Now, the FTC is alleging that Project Nessie uh, gave Amazon over a billion dollars in profits during the time that it was in use. Project Nessie was turned off 2019, but the unredacted lawsuit notes that Amazon executives repeatedly contemplated turning it back on. Uh, We can get sort of a glimpse as to the importance of Project Nessie and Amazon's ecosystem by the fact that one of their main buildings in their South Lake Union campus is named Nessie. Now maybe we know why. So just as an aside, we'll get into this in just a second. I'm curious about the whole name Nessie, which is also the Loch Ness Monster's (laughs) nickname. Where did the name Nessie come from? Do we know? Or you know, it- that's, that's a great question. I'd, I'd love to know the answer to that question, Mike. So, so, all right. So when we have something like this, and, and Amazon, this, is, this was a long time coming. We knew with the new FTC chair that this was going to be something that, that it was going to be targeted. Amazon specifically was going to be targeted. Joni, uh, quick question, and then we can get back into the sort of the deeper Amazon stuff. Do you think this is why Jeff Bezos announced his move to Miami? <laughs> No, I think Jeff Bezos has been living everywhere but Seattle for the longest period of time. Now, it's funny, curious, I mean, for this announcement that he's officially, you know, leaving Seattle for Miami. It is curious because it's at the same time that all this redacted, amazing information is coming out. Uh, I think it has more to do with the uh, state capital gains tax, that the fact that he actually uh, is being official about it. But So I don't really think there's that connection. But it does kind of tie the bow rather nicely here. So, uh, let, Catherine, let me go back to you for a minute. Do you think that the ultimate goal here by the FTC is to sort of change Amazon's internal business practices? Or do you think there's a larger goal here regarding the, the talk about breaking up the online retailer entirely? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I think the goal of breaking Amazon up uh, is perhaps uh, ambitious, Um, but uh, maybe not out of the question. Maybe it's something that Amazon itself um, could be considering. That's what what some folks have theorized, that uh, Amazon might consider breaking up its online marketplace from its cloud services division. That would uh, maybe enable it to... uh, 
spin off a division of the company that has consistently been very profitable. But who knows? I think personally uh, that this action against Amazon is a shot across the bow. Uh, You know, the FTC under Biden has said that it's going to go after some of these giant corporations. And Amazon has been a white whale for FTC chair Lena Khan ever since she was in grad school. Uh, This is something that she's been interested in pursuing. It was something actually that she kind of made her career on based based on her the idea that Amazon is is anti-competitive in many ways, even when, and this is the question I have for you, Claudia, uh, Amazon is, she alleged that Amazon's anti-competitive practices are something that the, the regulators have not really paid attention to because the actual prices and the delivery was reasonable to consumers. And it's always been sort of this change of focus from, is, should it be about protecting business competitiveness or should it be about protecting consumers? Claudia, as a consumer very occasionally of Amazon's uh, <laughs> capacity to deliver products to your door. Tell me about your approach to Amazon and the upcoming Christmas season. Um, I will use Amazon for, as you say, for convenience items during the the rest of the year. At Christmas, I refuse. I think Amazon killed Christmas. I think that <laughs> I think it, I thought Joe Biden did. <laughs> I, I think it sort of made everything incredibly sterile to me. Um, the whole holiday season, and it needn't just be Christmas, um, is sort of about getting out there, bustling around, going to little mom and pop shops, you know, sort of seeing your community. This is this is antithetical to Amazon. This, and, and, I, and I really, it's the best part of the holiday, getting out there and, and, and sort of crossing paths with people. Um, so I refuse, refuse to use Amazon at Christmas, even though, you know, it means standing online at the post office for sometimes like an hour. Um, but I don't know, that's part of the experience too. I don't know. For me, personally, I couldn't uh, – I adjusted to online purchasing so fast it frightens me. I mean, I try to keep my Amazon use in control. In other words, I try to package things together, but I don't know. It's so convenient. It just it kills me with the convenience. And, and Joni, you were talking about this earlier. So are you – when you see this, this lawsuit and the FTC move, are, is there any concern – should consumers be – concerned that that all of the stuff that's going after Amazon as it relates to biz anti-competitive practices is that actually in the end potentially going to hurt the consumers well that's the whole bit here if you think back to how big uh, the lawsuit was against Microsoft the antitrust lawsuit uh, you know the question is it's a pretty consistent question in the in antitrust is the consumer doing better because of a certain practice or is a certain practice hurting the consumer? And you now have, as explained very well here by this panel, that the fact that these practices that we're talking about, Nessie and the Monsters and you know all their friends, uh, that they actually do not benefit the consumer. And back when this it was really interesting, I look back at the statement uh, from Amazon when this lawsuit was first filed. Uh, against Amazon back in September. And they were all about, you know, no, we still benefit the consumer. Right. You know, we're really, you know, if you if you proceed with your lawsuit and you're successful, actually the consumer will be hurt. Well, that's what we're going to spend years trying to figure out. So I don't think big picture that uh, that that this lawsuit will necessarily break up Amazon. I think it may change some of its practices because, as you know, they self-corrected. They would turn off Nessie, right? They they knew that they had some problems there, and well, that I thought it was watching. when when right when they right. thought people were watching yeah, after the investigation <laughs> right. started. Right. Yeah, and I, I just I want I want to bring up one other example that was mentioned in the lawsuit of how consumers are harmed by Amazon's practices related to advertising. Amazon basically forces third party sellers to buy a ton of useless ads on its uh, marketplace platform. Even Amazon recognized, the FTC alleges, that these ads were quote-unquote defects. And one of the examples that I found so funny mentioned in this lawsuit is that when you search for bottled water, an ad for buck piss turned up. <laughs> Wait a minute, because, because they, get a better, a better pro- they get a better profit out of the buck piss? I mean, it could be. I, th- I mean, I think that whoever because was selling it had just says exactly people who drink water might also want. It's buck a little, piss. it's a little opaque why that <laughs> ad ended up on that search, but I think we can agree it's certainly not who what whoever was searching for buck piss is probably interested in buying. 
Catherine, I, I, oh, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. I guess I think zooming way out, nobody can really believe that Amazon is all about the consumer. They're, they're all about Amazon. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, it sounds good, but it, and it may have been true for convenience sake, but it's ultimately not the bot, their bottom line. Right? Catherine, could you uh, for a minute? There is a, so sometimes in these big cases, particularly when it relates to Amazon, you're not dealing with just Amazon as a Seattle company. You're dealing with other companies that actually have been fighting with Amazon. Talk to me a little bit about the lawsuit and uh, Zulily and what happened here. Yeah. So one of the other uh, really local close to home allegations in the lawsuit is that Amazon has systematically forced other e-commerce competitors out of the market by punishing the third party sellers on Amazon.com who choose to work with those competitors and by setting prices it knew those competitors couldn't beat, even though Amazon might be taking a loss. So that's what happened to Zulily, the lawsuit said. Um, Zulily uh, launched this deal, this this great program where it said it would beat any price on a bunch of the products that it, it was selling. Amazon looked at that. They said, nuh-uh, not in our turf. They started punishing the the third-party sellers who sold on Amazon.com, who also sold on Zulily, booting them out of the buy buy box, basically making it harder for consumers to find their products, and also by just slashing prices on products that were also being sold on Zulily so that Zulily was unable to keep his promise uh, of offering the lowest prices to consumers. And Zulily has since been sold, I think, a couple of times, right? and, And talk a bit about the importance... Uh, you mentioned the buy box. I mentioned it earlier in the intro. How important is the buy box? Something that the, the thing that all of us click, correct? That's when right. We, when we want to buy something on Amazon. That's right. It is of primary importance. Uh, it's it's almost impossible for third party sellers to uh, get any sales if they're not the product that is featured in the buy box. So, you know, so for example, there's a third party sellers who are selling, they're all selling the same product. Only one of those products from only one of those sellers is going to be featured in the buy box. If they're not, they're listed on this very sort of obscure part of the website that says see similar products from other sellers. You click on that and it will show you other sellers that are selling the same product. But if you're not in the buy box, you're not getting the sales. So, so the buy box appears to be like the punishment center for Amazon. And I actually, you know, when you're buying something on there and you, you get kind of stuck, you can't figure out, well, I'm trying to buy this. But it's just it, it, it's too hard to access that. I think it's just like, you know, practices will change, maybe self-correcting uh, as they figure out the peop- what people, what exactly. the regulators actually know about them. Exactly. I mean, and don't forget Amazon's business is constantly changing. You know, when they first went into books, everyone said, oh, no, you know, you can't have you can't have Amazon controlling this much. But their prices were better. Their delivery was better. The consumer was benefiting. But now you have them closing, interestingly, some of the brick and mortar bookstores. And I, I saw two of their um, brick and mortar clothing stores closing. Now, you know, they're changing constantly. They're just trying them as a zillion things. That's absolutely true. All right. Moving moving along to. Uh, investigations, but this is on a more local uh, lo- local level. An Idaho woman and her son have been arrested on kidnapping charges for taking their son's 15-year-old girlfriend to Bend, Oregon for an abortion after she became pregnant. Uh, Idaho, for those of you who don't know, is among the most restrictive states when it comes to abortion and has, for all practical purposes, nearly banned it. The mom and the son face decades in prison for for the kidnapping charges. Idaho authorities say they are not prosecuting the abortion, but rather for taking the 15-year-old girl out of state without her own mother's consent. Claudia, this is a really complicated story. What do you think is actually happening here? It is a really complicated story. And as, as reported so far, there are a lot of holes. Definitely what's happening is a young girl in a bad situation. And I don't just mean with her boyfriend's mom, um, though that seems like a bad situation. But um, she was her, – her own mother thought she was living at her dad's house, but she wasn't. She had moved in at her boyfriend's house. So clearly there was some reason where she didn't want to be at her dad's house. Her mom didn't even know that apparently. And um, – while living at her boyfriend's house for what appears to be at least a couple of months, um, she was supposedly um, – the the boyfriend's mom was smoking meth with her. The boyfriend's mom appears to be charged with trafficking meth. Um, so this is a girl in a bad situation and the only adult who's really on top of it is this meth – allegedly meth-smoking mom. Um, her own mother – um, is the source of the complaint, as I understand it. Um, her own mother said that 
that the girl had been sexually assaulted and um, and and brought this um, abortion to authorities' attention. So, Catherine, let me ask you quickly: What this particular case? Uh, they are not being charged regarding the state, the Idaho's own abortion laws, but rather kidnapping. But what effect do you think this has on people seeking a legal abortion at a state, particularly those who are leaving states where it's highly, highly restricted? Yeah, I mean, I want to echo first everything that Claudia said. I think this this case is so complicated and honestly heartbreaking uh, to to read about. But you know, I think zooming out, cases like these are are designed for one purpose. They're designed to have a chilling effect on people who uh, may need to travel across state lines to seek an abortion. Um, you know, apart from this case, Idaho's anti-abortion law already allows the relatives of people who obtain an abortion to sue abortion providers. Um, I, I, I feel like the point of these laws and the point of these sorts of prosecutions is just to create a, a climate of fear around seeking necessary medical care. Which is working, apparently. Um, supposedly about half of the OBGYNs who handle high-risk pregnancies are planning to – expected to leave the state, expected to leave Idaho by the end of the year for exactly this reason. But, well, jo- but jo- uh, Joni, you had mentioned something before the show regarding that these restrictive abortion laws – post Dobbs decision, have have they reduced the number of abortions? No, and that's the point. If the point was to reduce the number of abortions, it's not working because um, abortions, since, since many of these laws have been enacted, have actually either stayed steady or gone up. And so, you know, if you think about it, the pro-choice folks, they had been looking, this is not the case, but they were looking for a great case where they could show uh, a young woman who had her life changed for the worse because of the, the new laws. This case is, well, it's just so many mom problems here. I don't even know where to start. Right. You know, you have a mom who does not know for a very significant period of time where her daughter is. It's not that hard to know that. I, I sometimes laugh to myself because um, uh, the former executive editor of the Seattle Times, a very good friend of mine, uh, used to do the the craziest things to know where his daughter and my daughter were. Uh, One involved a party and him staying in a tree. But I won't keep going there. (laughs) Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. Love you. Okay. But um, in this case, you have the the mother of the young girl doesn't know where her child is. You have this other mother. What? She's uh, doing meth, and then she's making these decisions. I mean, this is a really rough case, as everybody has said, and it will not be a test case for either. And we'll be definitely, I'm sure the show and news people will be following this one as it as it plays out. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Week in Review in just a bit. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. This is Week in Review on KUOW 94.9. I'm Mike Lewis in for Bill Radke. Joining us are Seattle Times editorial writer and columnist Claudia Rowe, insider investigations correspondent Catherine Long, political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. The Seattle Times Gene Balk reported that the use of medications to combat depression and anxiety rose significantly in the Seattle area during the pandemic. Statistically, one group is largely responsible for that increase, young adults. In surveys conducted by market research firm Nielsen in December uh, 2020 through May 2023, 18% of the adult population in the Seattle metro area, a projected something like 581,000 people, said they had purchased medication for depression or anxiety in the last 12 months. That's up 14.5% in surveys conducted from January uh, 2018 through May 2020. Joni, you were saying before the show, but you recently hosted a forum on mental health challenges, particularly as it relates to young people. What did this story tell us about people and their access to mental health care, particularly mental health meds? So this is very predictable, uh, and this shall be the battle of the surveys and the um, studies, I guess, because I, as you mentioned, I hosted a forum earlier this week at Seattle University 
which will be also on the Seattle channel. And we were discussing mental health challenges with Congressman Adam Smith of the 9th District and State Health Secretary Dr. Umer Shaw. And we the whole thing was about this uh, prevalence of anxiety and depression as much as 50 percent. Uh, of folks ages 18 to 24 reported having anxiety or depression symptoms in this last year. And so that's quite a, a high number if you compare it to the overall population right. of all adults is 33%. And so, you know, when you think about it, folks who have access to health care are going to take someone who's expressing these feelings to a doctor. What is a doctor going to do? Often, he or she's going to prescribe medications. And so that's why you have that access to it uh, uh, showing up in a, in a different survey. Uh, you know, and Dr. Shaw in particular mentioned how uh, they're really seeing it and they're really trying to reach young people of color, LGBTQ youth, and in certain cases for certain of their programs, folks on Indian reservations. Right. Claudia, do you think that there might also be an issue of – access as it relates to overprescribing, which from what you read in the story? You know, I wonder, this is going to be probably pretty difficult to prove, and I don't mean to belittle um, the numbers, but I think that that group, particularly the 18 to 24-year-olds, I think this spike is, is includes a, a wider age range, but 18 to 24-year-olds, I bet if you polled them 20 years ago, might also um, report high, high rates of depression. I've seen a lot of stuff about, um, I mean, sort of coming out of adolescence. What I think is a cultural change is the sort of prevalence with which these pills are prescribed. And if you talk to much, much older people, you know, like senior citizens, they sort of recoil at the idea of easily, you know, reg- easily taking um, antidepressants, at least the seniors I've spoken to. Uh, Joni, you look like you want to say something. Oh, I just want to get at one one thing there, that one of the other sides of the argument of uh, taking the medications, and this was definitely uh, stressed by Congressman Smith and State Health Secretary uh, Dr. Shaw, is that a concern, I guess, that we haven't built in enough resilience in our young folks for that's you know, interesting. Have right? a problem, feel sad, uh, feel anxious or depressed, take a pill. We we've we've taught them in some ways, and we need to maybe fix this. Probably do need to fix this. Uh, if you have that problem, immediately seek help instead of saying whether it built in the resilience and understand you're going to face troubles. And when you face those troubles, you have to kind of ride it. Johnny, let me ask you a question about that. Did in your in the in the forum that you were just a part of, did they talk about how this relates or any statistical correlation? Um, maybe not maybe we won't get to a causation, but correlation between the rise of social media and this uh, additional level of mental health problems and anxiety? Oh, absolutely. That was one of the questions. And I remember um, Congressman Smith talking a lot about, you know, we all know this, that what you see on social media are the, are the perfect life, the happy times. And he used this example of, you know, nobody's going to show the picture of themselves um you know, feeling uh, nauseous and upset about something that happened in their life, that picture does not go on social media. And so if you're constantly, you're using social media, and if you're constantly comparing yourself to all your friends who look so darn happy in the pictures, you're going to come up short. I think that what you said about the sort of pop a pill idea is is for real, especially if you look at um, how frequently young people are prescribed these pills without counseling, right? So it's just take a pill. It's not sort of work, not as much work it through because the counseling is long and expensive and health insurance doesn't want to pay for that. Catherine, when you when you saw the story, and you're a person obviously who's you know from an investigative reporter standpoint, you're used to going through you know the numbers and the data and calling to question things that didn't make sense. What I know I know a couple of things that struck me in the data, but what struck you in particular when you saw the 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 when you drill down on specifically who are the folks most likely uh, to be to be getting uh, additional prescriptions for for uh, depression meds? 
Well, one thing that I didn't see in the data is I noticed that it it, uh, did not survey people under the age of 18. And I guess from what I know about how the pandemic in particular, and also, um, you know, the increasing use of of social media and phones and technology and lack of in-person connections that young people have been forming compared to previous generations, I would expect to see rates of uh, antidepressant medication to be even higher among among people younger than 18, but we don't we don't have that data. You know, the other thing that we noticed is that cities uh, with large Latino populations uh, had less use of antidepressants, and that's something that Gene pointed out in his article as well. Uh, I think that goes into the point about access to healthcare. Right? You you can't. You can't take a pill if you can't get in to see a get doctor see a and doctor, get it prescribed, right? right? right. Um, and, you know, I think I think there's certainly something to be said about the idea that maybe the pendulum has swung too far in one direction and that these pills might be getting overprescribed. But I think it's also fair to say that uh, attitudes have changed among younger generations and they feel like it's not necessary to uh, suffer through something that could be addressed with medication. Um, and I think, I think that that is a real attitudinal shift. Okay, and briefly before we get into to some discussion about foster care, uh, one of the components here was was the level of prescription, which apparently is lower in Sunbelt cities as opposed to areas like where we are now, which is hardly the Sunbelt. Uh, what do you folks think about the whole idea of depression among young people and and what's referred to? And I know that this has been challenged somewhat. The medical community as seasonal affective disorder, or just the the long dark that we are rolling into right now. Well, what a perfect thing to say. Uh, as we're rolling into the long dark starting right. on Sunday. Oh, my gosh. I right. mean, I think it affects young people and everyone. And if you looked at uh, the numbers in that story, the folks who uh, were far more likely to be on meds, the young folks, lived in northern, darker clim- right. climates. It seemed, to be, it seemed to be at least a correlation there. Anyone else feel the seasonal affective disorder coming on here? I personally don't. I'm excited for ski season, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, I love, I love all the seasons. Yeah, so. I can't, I can't. all right. So speaking of young people, um, Claudia, you're working on a book about the foster care system called uh, State Race, Stories of Survival in the American Foster System. Uh, I think the book's supposed to come out 2025, you said, correct? State raised, uh, yeah, is scheduled for 2025. So we know that foster care, when it is in the news, is seldom... Uh, in the public eye for good reasons. You've written and researched extensively about the system. When we talk about foster care in Washington state, what are the outcomes for children who are pulled into the system? And is it doing what we want it to do? So kids in foster care are largely invisible. um, And and we we should start there. Um, Because they are minors, um, their, you know, their records, their files are, are sort of generally shielded. However, kids in foster care also move around a lot, and that means that they switch schools and school districts frequently. Um, And so it is probably not a surprise that graduation rates from high school for youth who are growing up in foster care are abysmal. Um, In Washington, uh, 53%, only 53% get a high school diploma, and that's a vast improvement from even 10 years ago when the number was in the 30s. Um, like 35%, I think, were getting a high school diploma 10 years ago. So moving around a lot um, is going to be make your, your academic progress really, really difficult. The other thing it's going to do is make you much, much more likely statistically to end up locked up. If you move five times in foster care, you are, uh, I think, 90% of the kids who move five or more times in foster care end up incarcerated to some degree. If you are incarcerated, your education outcomes are even worse than they are if you're just a regular kid going through foster care. So, you know, are the numbers enormous? No. Uh, Washington State has made real incursions in the number of young people brought into foster care. So we're roughly in the sort of five to 6,000 range now of young people in foster care. And not all of those kids are school-aged. Many of them are babies. However, that small number of young people can, can um, represent an enormous social cost, just like you have like, uh, you know, the frequent flyers who are the, the people who most 
routinely show up in the King County Jail or whatever they call frequent guests or whatever they call them. Um, just like that, a small number of foster kids um, can who don't get a proper education are going to cost are, are costing our society enormous amounts of money. The U.S. spends like thirty billion dollars every year on foster care. And these are the outcomes, like 50% get high school diploma, you know, enormous numbers end up incarcerated. The costs are astronomical. And, um, you know, it's not like this is unknown. Washington has known about this, Washington State, for a long, long time. I have to say there is a little news um, in that finally, finally, um, the legislature has charged um, our state education department, OSPI, with really doing something about this. Now, it's not imminent. Um, the superintendent of public instruction has until um, fall 2027 um, to put a plan in place. But responsibility for outcomes in education of foster youth is now at the feet of the superintendent of our state education department, not at the feet of the school district where they may, you know, they may be um, incarcerated if they're like if uh, foster youth is at Echo Glen or at Green Hill. Presently, the school districts where those facilities are located are responsible for these kids' education. By 2027, it will be the responsibility of the superintendent of public instruction, and I think that is. Um, all to the good, because really no one has been held accountable for these abysmal results, which have persisted for decades. When we when we talk about foster care, then in the state, and, and it, it's funny how it gets a lot of the care really gets remanded to the educational system, uh, as opposed to other areas. When we talk about this, if you are if it, when you say it's a good thing uh, for it to be remanded to the to the super, school superintendent, what? What are we? What what is the benefit of that? I accountability, right? That right now it's totally diffused. There is really no one who you can say, "Hey, what what is this?" In part because kids move around so much. Jenny, well, my question has to do with the fact that when I was thinking about your book and I was thinking about this problem, and then I saw a brand new KUOW story about the number of um, students uh, experiencing homelessness, that number spiking quite a bit in the last year. I was thinking about, whoa, what what else can we put on the school system to handle and in, for what you're saying to be accountable for it's it's quite a big load when you think of all the different problems that they have to deal with that maybe they didn't have to deal with so much before maybe but we as a government you know our government says we're taking this kid out of their family to get to get them to a better situation they're in a worse situation and right. The statistics would say that 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 removing them from the family, which can be a really difficult thing, doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes, although that is still sort of a pervasive belief in some circles. And it really depends, um, I should say, on when a child is removed from their family and how long they spend in foster care. If you are removed very, very young and, you know, adopted into a stable home, yes, th- this is not going to apply to you. But if you are an older child, you know, like say 10, and you really grow up and then age out of foster care, the results are really horrible. All right. Thank you, Claudia. We're going to take a short break. Week in Review will return in just a couple of minutes. This is Week in Review on KUOW 94.9. I'm Mike Lewis in for Bill Radke. Seattle Times editorial writer and columnist Claudia Rowe is here. Insider Investigations correspondent Catherine Long is also here. And political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter is here. Seattle, at the behest of the mayor's office, is starting a new policy limiting the Seattle Police Department's ability to use ruses or lying uh, in their work, citing recent incidents where the public's trust was undermined by officers knowingly using untrue statements. According to the new policy, the police will not be able to use a statement an officer's nose is not true over any mass media or in any way that will, quote, shock the conscience. 
the policy also requires officers to get permission before using any ruses, along with other use guidelines. The in- Office of Inspector General for Public Safety and City Council Member Lisa Herbold are the ones who pushed for the policy change after incidents when a ruse may have contributed to a suicide and a ruse incited chaos during the George Floyd protest. Catherine, what does this change in policing do and what does it not do? I, mean, I think this is certainly a, a, a step in the right direction. Uh, the police uh, police chief is saying that this is going to help rebuild trust between the city and the police department uh, that was broken after police officers used ruses uh, in the past. Uh, one thing it does not do uh, that I think is really important to emphasize is that it does not prohibit police from lying during questioning. And that's so important to note because uh, this nonprofit, The Innocence Project, has found that 30 percent of people who were exonerated with DNA evidence were originally convicted because police lied during questioning, or at least that contributed to the conviction. Um, this is so insidious. I mean, my, my colleague, Laura Taliano wrote an amazing story this week uh, about a, uh, a man who was convicted for murdering his 19-year-old, or sorry, he was 19. He was convicted for murdering his infant son, uh, in part because police lied during his questioning. And that prompted him, his defense attorneys say, to make a false confession when, in fact, this young baby had been suffering for health prob- with health problems since his birth. Uh, it's just such a sad story. Really recommend everybody everybody reads it. Uh, it's about baby Nikolai. Um, but this problem just just persists. And, and uh, you know, Seattle's new rule is a step in the right direction, but it's much broader than... Joni, should should to Catherine's point, then should lying still be a part of an police investigator's toolkit? Well, you never want to say, "Hey, let's include that lying provision there." What I think uh, the mayor is taking and working with uh, some on the council is taking the right step. Look, our community has a real issue with public safety and our relationship with the police department. If you pay one ounce of attention to those scary mailers arriving in your mailbox for the city council right now, you know that we have this problem. So increasing the trust by saying we are not going to use this in the way that we have in the past is a very good step for this city. Because if you think about it, what happened, you know, you get in this loop that we've been in where folks experienced the kind of examples that you're talking about, and they lose faith in the police department. And then what happens when it comes time to fund a now beleaguered police force? You know, the voters are kind of half and half on it in some ways because they feel that the police sort of earned some of what they got. So instead of the council uh, voting specifically and absolutely to defund by a certain percentage. What you have is defund by default in some ways because the officers know that people don't like them and that they, you know, you know, they're out there risking their lives for some people who don't really want their service. So I think anything the mayor can do, and he did say he would do this as part of his campaign and, in, you know, the last few months, anything uh, that he can do to restore trust between the police and the communities they serve is a good thing. Claudia, so they, this has been characterized as first in the nation kind of uh, kind of effort by the by the police and by the city council. What are other states? Other states are also making modifications. To this what are they doing? They are, and um, my reporting um, turned up that in 2021, Illinois and Oregon um, became the first two states to prohibit police lying to minors during investigations. I would really like to see that here. I think. Minors are um, sitting duck. I think it is really, really easy um, for police to manipulate them. I have seen it um, in investigations. And um, as Catherine mentioned about the Innocence Project's um, look at um, false confessions, what I found was that 30 percent of those defendants were 18 or younger when they confessed um, during um, interrogations where police used ruses. So um, young people are particularly vulnerable, and I I wish that had been underscored in in the um, Seattle new rules. I didn't see that. Catherine, let me me ask, let me throw it to you then. Should uh, lying be a part of an investigator's toolkit? Uh, not a criminal justice expert, but um, honestly, I think I think not. Like if you're if you're coercing a co- confession, I I don't I don't see that that has much value. 
And it just continues to destroy trust. What do you think, Joni? Well, no, I'm just looking at the uses uh, uses that ruses uh, <laughs> can still have and to further de- de-escalate a situation, to calm or provide comfort to a person, to promote the safety of that person, scene management. In some of those cases, you know, I, it's not like I'm, oh, yeah, pro-lying. No, but I can see where some cases where you might need it to get everybody through a, a really, you know, eruptive situation. Right. So so in other words, maybe this sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, guardrails um, is important, but that sometimes they are going to exceed the guardrails. Claudia, what do you? I think there's a lot of room for subjectivity here. I think there's a lot of room yeah. for interpretation. This um, term about um, you can't use a ruse in any way that what was it? Shocks the conscience. Shocks the conscience. You know, yeah. there's pretty broad range of. Um, <laughs> I mean, of like we're, we're going to find that, that specific term in a, in a lawsuit. I'm sure. Yeah, I right. suspect so. I think this gives um, defense attorneys a lot of room to make arguments. Um, right against this. Well, on both sides. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly true. All right. Moving on. Um, KUW, among others, reported that the downtown PCC co-op supermarket is closing just two years after it opened. This is following months of uh, reported financial losses. The PCC, it's it's at the corner of 4th and Union, I think, in Seattle. It is scheduled to close on January 31st, 2024. The CEO, Chris Snervisesand, said in a statement, quote, Despite an amazing team, fantastic store conditions, and a supportive landlord, our downtown store has unfortunately remained unprofitable. And we do not see that changing for the foreseeable future since continued losses pose a significant financial risk to our co-op's long-term viability. We are acting now. Uh, the PCC also has blamed pandemic wage increases. Uh, it pays its staff, I think, on average or about 20 bucks an hour. The store also has undertaken a rapid expansion. Uh, Catherine, what do you feel like is going on here? Well, I think not to not to bring everything back to Amazon, but this store was the uh, the sort of anchor tenant in Rainier Tower, right. that big ski slope building uh, that <laughs> has had a real hard time filling up ever since Amazon pulled out of the project a few years ago. And you know, when I look at the the grocery stores that are around Amazon South Lake Union campus packed, packed to the brim. I feel like a little sardine when I'm in there. The, and, the Whole Foods, for example. Exactly. Down the right. yeah. yeah. You can't you can't get a slice of pizza at, at lunchtime. Uh, I, I think that this downtown PCC closing is is a, a victim to a certain extent of Amazon deciding not to take space in that building, but uh, also of PCC's really aggressive growth strategy that it pursued in the years before the pandemic. Uh, obviously, it couldn't have known that the pandemic was going to happen, but it did leave it more vulnerable to that shock. Joni, does that ring true to you? Oh, absolutely. So PCC PCC, one of the main um, factors in business is when you expand, you have to do it carefully. And they expanded very quickly. And they had plenty. You know, it's great to have, you know, hindsight as your vision here. But they could not have foreseen uh, the pandemic. They could not have foreseen um, Amazon's decision, which was a a reaction, if you think about it, to the uh, proposed Amazon tax at the time where they started retreating. And they couldn't have foreseen, you know, sort of what downtown would be like. So this was the this was seemed like a great decision and a great expansion at the time. But it really was a risky one. And, um, you know, every, you know, folks are going to try to say, oh, it's the crime problem downtown. It's the homelessness problem. Maybe a little, but I don't think that's that's the driving force for what is going on in this case. And Claudia, let me let me throw it to you then. PCC is closing in downtown. GeekWire just reported that Seattle is a leading city when it comes to empty office space. Uh, what can we say about downtown? Yeah, th- th- that's it. Um the empty office space thing. I, I, you know, the mayor is doing his best to drum up enthusiasm. But when outside visitors come through Seattle, as I just had an outside visitor from New York come in uh, last week, they are stunned at how the, uh, she said the streets are empty to her. You know, to me, it didn't look that way to her. It did. Obviously, she's coming from New York. But um but which is also empty in some parts of it. New York's having a lot of problems too. I've heard others compare um, Seattle to San Francisco in a negative way and say that San Francisco looks, other than the tenderloin, um, looks like it's starting to 
be a vibrant city. I would say that's true. I was just in San Francisco and New York actually last month uh, for for several weeks. And uh, I would say that Seattle is significantly emptier than the central financial districts of both those cities. I I feel like that has at least something to do with what's going on with PCC. I agree with you, Joni, that it was probably kind of a, a rash move to expand so aggressively, though, of course, you couldn't have foreseen what would happen. You know, what, you know what's important to note here is that um, during the summer in Seattle, downtown was absolutely jumping with tourists. We had we had one of the best, you know, uh, hotel occupancy rates. Uh, number of tourists who visited was, you know, millions. Uh, but when it gets colder here, darker, as it's about to do, right. you know, that's when you can see it. And I think that we should at least for Seattle pat ourselves on the back a little bit over San Francisco because Seattle, even at those times, um, is doing better than than downtown San Francisco. Portland's having similar problems. Well, let me – so the comparison to San Francisco is an interesting one, and it's almost impossible to do a Seattle story without some sort of comparison to San Francisco, which tends to be about, what, 15 years ahead uh, in its its social problems from where Seattle is, and then we sort of – we work on catching up. Catherine, let me ask you. The – the downtown area, which people sometimes I think forget, was the fastest growing residential neighborhood in Seattle. There's something like 80,000 people living down there. It's a sizable residential neighborhood. And yet it doesn't seem to be able to support that sort of basic thing that you see in every other neighborhood, which is a supermarket. I mean, I guess you can count the Whole Foods. And there's H-Mart. In, in, South, in South, and, pardon me? And there's H-Mart as well. H-Mart as second. well. All right, on second. But is it odd to you that that's something like the PCC, even with the Amazon market, Amazon building not being filled with Amazon employees, uh, does it seem odd to you that that downtown, given the density of population there, doesn't have a more thriving sort of retail space as it relates to supermarkets? Yeah, it does seem odd to me. Uh, you know, so one of my family members uh, formerly lived in one of those bustling new skyscrapers downtown. And I, <laughs> I was always a little bit uh, weirded out. Where did where did he go grocery shopping? It, you know, he had the, the Target, he had the H Mart. And then I remember that he just goes to Pike Place Market. Oh, right. Well, there you go. And that actually would be... <laughs> that's that's a, quite that, a grocery store. And that's know. actually a fair way to put it, right? That yeah. is quite... That's a that's a supermarket's a supermarket, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So so last thing about this then, do you see, Catherine, any... Uh, you saw you probably saw the GeekWire story on, on Seattle leading the country uh, in empty office space. Do you think that that is going to make a, a turn back given, you know, the amount of time you've spent paying attention certainly to Amazon and, and, other, and other downtown businesses? Or do you think that this is a fundamental shift in what we should expect out of downtown? I, I think we're going to see a turnaround. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, talking uh, to, to folks in the commercial real estate space, and they are actually uh, cautiously excited about, uh, you know, opportunities to buy up some distressed assets uh, because they think that things are going to get better. Um, and I think that Amazon is one example. They've been uh, forcing folk folks um, by, by hook and by crook back into the office. Right, that's true. Uh, Amazon has said that they are, you're, you're fired. You don't go to the office a few days a, a week. a little nasty about that one. But, but, on, but on the other end, you've, got, you've got a Zillow, right, that mm-hmm. has done just the opposite. And it also had a sizable number of people uh, in downtown. Do you feel like there's still going to be that? Op- the commercial folks feel like it's going to reverse itself? I, 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 think, I, th- I think it will. Not immediately and certainly slowly, but eventually it will happen. All right. Last. Speaking of that area uh, of town, one quick note we want to make is the Cinerama under a new name uh, is it's uh, reopening here shortly. Uh, I don't know if any of you folks are fans of going to actual movie theaters anymore. I know nationally it's down. Uh, I think we're going to start with Claudia on this one because I suspect I know what uh, Claudia's answer is. Oh, here. Are you, do, do you plan on going to the new Cinerama and catching? some sort of movie or maybe having some chocolate popcorn? I would love for there to be a reason to go to um, a movie theater. I haven't been to a movie theater in years. I would love to be, um, to have a reason. Did you go to to movies as a kid? I mean, was that, was that something? Constantly. Yeah, I figured. Constantly, constantly went to movies as a kid. I love movies. Um, Frankly, I don't know that, I mean, between all the strikes, but not only the strikes, I don't know that Hollywood is making movies that are kind of worthy of the Cinerama experience. Um, Maybe Barbie, but I haven't seen it, I confess. Um, I don't know. I I would love to have a reason to go to Cinerama, but I haven't seen a reason. Joni, you going to be going? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, think about this. Um, downtown is like sometimes one step forward, a couple steps back. And healthy, thriving downtowns have grocery stores and they have theaters. And so I praise the SIF uh, Cinema downtown, which is the new name, the of, new name right? of the Cinerama. Uh, you know, Seattle International Film Festival, to fill in the acronym, you know, has always done really creative things, uh, including launching itself true. into a festival. Right. I actually knew the um, originals, Dan Ireland and Daryl McDonald. And I just think it's cool that they're willing to give it a try. There's no guarantee it's going to work. It's really hard to get people off their couches. I think maybe free parking and free bus passes might help because you know that moment where you decide. Right. Am I leaving the house or am I, you know, or am I going to go see this whatever movie that Apparently, I Apparently Claudia is not making this decision. She's already decided. <laughs> well, I haven't. So cuz it's all about that popcorn, I think. All right. Well, Cap- <laughs> Cap- <laughs> Catherine, what about you? Are you going to you going to hit the new theater? Uh, the new old theater? So I lo- I love seeing movies in person. I'm blessed. I live in Columbia City. We have two movie theaters in Columbia City that are constantly showing amazing movies. But the tickets at the Cinerama are $20? What? How <laughs> How do they expect folks to pony up for that? <laughs> I guess for that community uh, experience. All right. Uh, we're nearing the end of the... <laughs> certain community. <laughs> certain community. Right. Uh, we're nearing the end of the show. Uh, briefly around the horn, if anyone has something this week, as per Bill's uh, tradition, that made them smile, let's hear it. Joni? Uh, the release of the last, last Beatles song, Now and Then. I'm a sucker for piano. My sister was a maestro at it. She was incredible. I play a horrible keyboard myself, but just the way that song goes, oh my gosh, it's just touching to hear those voices, which AI helped to extract John Lennon. And here we go. And all right, to that background, Catherine, what's what's yours? Oh, the stranger reported a hilarious story. Yesterday. I loved this story, by the way. I agree with you. <laughs> About a King County judge who tried to incentivize attorneys to file their uh, their paperwork online using a Harry Potter-like point system. Where he divided all the attorneys into four houses and made it a competition. <laughs> Some of those houses, I think, directly apply to attorneys, but yes. I'm, not, I'm not saying which ones. Oh, wow. That's yeah, that's pretty funny. All right, folks, and mine is that Seattle, apparently the number 12, everyone first is 12, is a fan of the Seahawks. Seattle also ranks 12. Uh, in being the rattiest city in the country, according to Oregon. All right, that is a show. Folks, I want to say thank you very much for joining us. Seattle Times editorial writer and columnist Claudia Rowe, insider investigations correspondent Catherine Long, political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Thank you all for thank coming you. to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Uh, Weekend Review is produced by Kevin Kniestat. Social media and live streaming are by Juan Pablo Chiquiza. Uh, Teo Papesco, Bernard Wallet is running the board. Sorry, clearing my throat. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Lewis.